Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. How does your belief in God's coming kingdom affect your life now? Does your belief in God's coming kingdom affect your life now? Now that we've looked at the kingdom as hope, that is what we look forward to, and gospel, what we preach to others, we'll examine how God calls us to embody the kingdom now. Taking our cue from Jesus' kingdom-saturated ministry, we'll see how he enacted the future in the present as a testimony and taste of what's to come. This, I think, is where learning about the kingdom really starts to get exciting, at least for practical application. This is Lecture 8 of the Kingdom of God class, originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for a grade. Here now is Podcast 99, The Kingdom Way. Lecture 8, The Kingdom Way. Please turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. We're going to Matthew 6, 31. I believe the kingdom has three dimensions to it. And those are hope, gospel, and way. And I said this in the syllabus, but you probably don't remember that by now. We've covered hope. We've covered that the kingdom is our hope. We just talked about the gospel of the kingdom. And now we're going to look at the kingdom as a way of life, as something that affects how we live now. There might be more to it than these three, but these are the three I'm I'm working with. Jesus was obsessed with the kingdom. We've already established that Jesus preached and believed that the kingdom was coming, right? We looked at a lot of verses on that. We looked at a lot of verses about how he's a kingdom preacher. And Jesus also believed that he was the Messiah. Now, if you're the Messiah, you have a special interest in the kingdom, don't you? More than anyone else, because you're in charge of the kingdom. Just like if you're in charge of some sort of event, other people might be interested in that event as well. But if you're planning the event, if you're in charge of the event, if you're leading the event, then you're especially interested in it. And so it was with Jesus, and that's that's as it should be. Jesus chose 12 disciples. Why did he choose 12 disciples? He's regathering Israel around himself. He's appointing to them to sit on the 12 thrones over the 12 tribes. His parables were all about the kingdom. Remember that? We looked at the parable of the sower ever so briefly, right? But the point there that I made was that the seed is the word of the kingdom, or it's the message of the kingdom. The parable of the tares and the wheat, we looked at that one as well. And we saw how that talks about the age to come when there's a harvest at the end of the age and there's a division between the tares and the wheat, the wheat and the weeds, and how Jesus is going to have a role to play there. We looked at the parable of the Minas and how Jesus teaches that he goes away to receive a kingdom and then he returns to bring it into force. And then we looked at the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is the idea that the Son of Man is going to come and sit on his throne and divide up the nations before him and judge them. You want to tell me you can understand Jesus without understanding the kingdom? I don't think so. It's impossible to understand Jesus without understanding the kingdom. In just the same way, it's impossible to understand Barack Obama without understanding the United States or what the presidency of the United States is, right? If Jesus is the king of the kingdom, you can't claim, oh, I know Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, and you don't know about his main focus in life. Jesus says, like I said, he was obsessed with the kingdom in a good way obsessed with it, right? Not in a bad way, but in a good way. It was his hope, his destiny, his dream, his sermon. He gave his life for it. In Revelation 5, 9, and 10, we looked at this verse a few times ago, where it says that you were slain and you purchased for God men from every tribe and nation and language and people. You have made them a kingdom of priests and they will reign upon the earth. Jesus dies. He sheds his blood to purchase us so that we could be in the kingdom. He called the kingdom a treasure in a field. Uh, He called it a pearl of great price. What is the point? We didn't even look at these parables, but what is the point of these parables? It's that the kingdom is worth selling everything to get. 
You remember the story about the treasure in the field? He said, look, somebody finds a treasure in this field and then presumably the treasure is so big they can't just like grab it right then and there and run away with it, right? So they, they run off and they're like, hey, I need to buy this field. And they're like, all right, this is the price and you can't afford it. So you sell everything you have just to buy this one field. You know, you liquidate your retirement, your savings account, your checking account, you max out all your credit cards, you take out a student loan, you do everything you can, you borrow from your relatives, and then you buy that one field, and you just know in your bones, if you can get this field, it's all gonna be worth it, because it has a treasure in it that's worth more than all that other stuff I was just talking about. That's how Jesus thought about the kingdom, that it's that valuable. He says, don't be anxious, right? What shall we eat or drink? What shall we wear? Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is a big statement. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek it above everything else. What do we spend our time thinking about? We spend our time thinking about what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear, right? These, this, this is not a new phenomenon. This is what they were worried about in the time of Jesus. He's like, look, the Gentiles, the pagans, everybody worries about that. You guys are supposed to be different. Instead of worrying about those things, you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Because look, if you seek first the kingdom and you don't have righteousness, you're gonna know about the kingdom and it's gonna be an important part of your life, but then you're not gonna get into the kingdom because you're not living righteously. And that's no good. So. You want to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Matthew 6.33, a key verse for you to know. Uh, flip over to Luke 4, please. But he doesn't stop there. And this is where it gets exciting. In fact, Jesus' whole ministry, his whole ministry enacted and embodied the kingdom of God. And so I'm going to look at three incidents in this lecture. One, his inaugural sermon. Two, his answer to John's delegation. And three, an exorcism. Let me just write those on the board so that you have them in your notes. I, I, I could say more, okay, about the kingdom way and how, how the future kingdom affected Jesus in his ministry and how he thought and how he did things, right? I could say more about it, but these three, I think, are very helpful for thinking about how Jesus embodied the kingdom or enacted the kingdom. One is his inaugural sermon, Luke 4, 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." So that's the part from Isaiah he read, which is not all that significant until we get to the next line, where in verse 20 it says, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So that is Jesus making a very strong statement what is he saying? He's saying he's doing Isaiah 61. He's like, look, this is my inaugural sermon. If you think about the president in America, right? When the president gets into office, they give an inaugural sermon, not a sermon, inaugural address, right? And that address is going to lay out what they think needs to be done in America. Same thing in the business world. A new CEO gets hired. That person is going to give some sort of an address and tell people their vision for their tenure. This is Jesus, his inaugural sermon, his initial explanation of what he thinks he's doing. And he, said, he reads Isaiah 61 and he says, look, that's what I'm doing. Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. This is, this is me. That's me. Now look back at Isaiah 61. We read through Isaiah 61 a while ago now, but here's what it said. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the debt. Oh, okay, right there. 
Jesus stopped there. Right? He quoted this part, and then he stopped right here. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, then he stopped and he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. But it goes on. What happens after the part that Jesus stopped quoting? It says, and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Verse five, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. You shall eat the wealth of nations. In their glory you shall boast. Verse seven, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Verse 11, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as the garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. So when Jesus says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me, you, you quote a certain section of the text they're supposed to know the context. They're supposed to know the rest of the story, right? I don't have to quote to you the entirety of a song. I can, I, can, I can tell you the first line or two, and the rest of the song you know I'm referring to by starting it that way. Isaiah 61 is a kingdom chapter. It's a kingdom prophecy. Rebuilding the ancient ruins. Look at all this uh, kingdom stuff here, right? Rebuilding the ancient ruins. How about the part where it said, comfort those who mourn? Didn't Jesus mention that in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. When are they going to be comforted? In the kingdom, obviously, right? Giving them gladness instead of mourning. Building up things. Ancient ruins. Uh, be, everyone's going to be a priest of the Lord. Foreigners are going to be your plot. This is a kingdom chapter. This is a kingdom prophecy. And so Jesus quotes a kingdom prophecy. Now, is the kingdom yet there when Jesus is there? No, the kingdom's still future. This kingdom's still to come. And yet Jesus is saying, this is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm doing this now. And so what Jesus does is he takes Isaiah 61 as his mission statement. Like golfers say, golfers say, be the ball. I think that's a baseball saying. Is that a baseball saying too? I don't know. It's definitely a golf saying. Be the ball. Just be the ball. It's a great right? Saying. Jesus is saying to him, saying to himself, "Be the kingdom. Just be the kingdom." Right now, I, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying Jesus is the kingdom, but you get my point. He's enacting. He's embodying the kingdom. That's point number one, is his inaugural sermon. He quotes a kingdom prophecy and says, look, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. That's not to, again, that's not to say that it's not going to be totally fulfilled in the age to come. It's not like Jesus went around repairing ancient cities. I mean, he was a carpenter, but I don't, we don't see any information about that. Uh, point number two, Jesus' answer to John's delegation. Look over at Luke chapter 7, verse 22. Uh, just to prepare you for that, there was this interesting incident where, and this is just earlier in the same chapter of Luke 7, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and he and his disciples had a crowd with him, and he drew near, and there was a funeral procession coming out. And so we have two crowds meet, and the funeral procession is carrying out the child of this widow, and it's her only child, and so she's in incredible grief probably sobbing uncontrollably. And there's a considerable crowd from the town, and Jesus has with him his own entourage, his own disciples, and then just people that are going with him. And they're carrying the son out, and Jesus approaches the woman, and he says to her, do not weep. And then he touched the beer. He touched what they're using to carry the dead child out on. And he said to the dead person, well, he said to the grieving mother, don't cry. And then he said to the dead person, of course, dead people can't hear you. I don't know if you knew that or not. Young man, we talked about the sleep of the dead before. The young man, I say to you, arise. That's what he said to the dead person. And wouldn't you know it? Because of the power of God in that situation, that dead person got up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother and everybody just went nuts. I mean, wouldn't you? If you're going to this funeral and your heart is just so full of grief over this poor woman, she's already lost her husband, now she's losing her only child. I mean, whose heart wouldn't be broken over that? And suddenly now, 
in the blink of an eye, she d she's not lost her child anymore. Suddenly her child's back. Who is this man? And it says that their reports about him went all over the place, including to the prison cell where John the Baptist was. He's got people that are supplying him with information. Somehow he's able to get information in and information out. And people are telling him, you know that Nazarene, a guy from Nazareth, he raised somebody from the dead. John's like, whew, whoa, what is this? And so John sends a delegation. He sends a group of people to go talk to Jesus. And my point about Jesus in this is we tend to look at the miracles of Jesus as acts of compassion, which they were, that's true. But I'm challenging you to think of those miracles as Jesus having a bubble of the kingdom around him, where wherever Jesus went, there was a pocket of the kingdom. And if you came close enough to Jesus, you were going to feel what the kingdom, you're going to get a taste of the kingdom, right? So that's, that's how I, I want to think about this. And I, and I say that because of what Jesus said in response to John's delegation right after this incident. They, they come to Jesus in verse 19. They say, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? That's the question John sends these representatives to ask Jesus. Are you the one to come or should we look for another? Are you the one? Is it you? It's asking for confirmation, right? You don't ask somebody if, you, if they're the Messiah if you don't already suspect they probably are, right? It's not like a question like, hey, I'm Sean, are you the Messiah? No, I mean, like, you don't say that when you first meet somebody. And in that very moment when this delegation of John has arrived, Jesus is in the midst of healing people from diseases, from plagues, from evil spirits, and from blindness. In other words, these people have come into the bubble. <laughs> and in that bubble, it's like the kingdom of God. So in the kingdom of God, are there blind people? No. no. Are there demonized people? No. no. In the kingdom of God, you don't have any of that sort of stuff. So Jesus is doing the kingdom. He's, he's, he's enacting and embodying the kingdom in that very moment. And so he says to them, Luke 7, he said to them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This statement includes quotations. This is, just, this is so cool. It includes quotations from both Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. So, Jesus, they say, are you the one? Jesus says to these delegates, he says, go back to John and you tell him what you've seen and heard. Is he saying yes or no? Am I the one or am I not? He's not answering them directly, is he? He's giving them a coded response. He's like, all right, look, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go back to John and you're just going to report what you've seen and heard right here among these people. In particular, the blind receive their sight. That's Isaiah 35. That's Isaiah 35 right there. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. Well, the dead are raised up is not in Isaiah 35, but it's even better than Isaiah 35. Because Isaiah 35 had the lame leaping like the deer, right? It had the blind receiving their sight. Jesus is like, I don't care if you're blind, deaf, and dead, you're going to get up. I mean, that's a whole nother level. Like Jesus just out Isaiah 35 to Isaiah 35. That's unbelievable. And then he says, and the poor have the good news preached to them. That right there is Isaiah 61. So we have Isaiah 61, and then this part up here is from Isaiah 35. And if you have an NASB, it capitalizes those parts of the verse because it recognizes it's a quotation from the Old Testament. Uh, just to be clear, Isaiah 35 is one of the most beautiful kingdom passages of the Old Testament. So Jesus, Jesus quotes two kingdom passages to answer John's question, are you the one to come? In other words, Jesus is like, I'm doing it now, baby. Well, he probably didn't say baby, but I'm doing it now, man. Take a look at what I'm doing. And so Jesus alluded to Isaiah 35 and 61 to answer these messengers. In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, it's me. 
I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. How do you know I'm the Messiah? I'm doing kingdom activity. I'm doing the things that the Messiah has prophesied to do. I am already doing it now. Look at my ministry, and if you look at my ministry, it reeks of the kingdom. So it makes sense that I'm the Messiah. That's what's going on here. It's a bit of a coded response because if you don't pick up the Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 lingo here, you're, you're just like, okay, he's doing acts of compassion. He's a, he's, a, he's a nice person. He's a good healer. He's you know obviously tapped into God here, but you're not going to get the full flavor of that kingdom identity. He says, do you see my miracles? Man, what it would be like to be there and see him touching these people? You know, they come in blind, they leave seeing. Isn't John and Jesus related? Right? Yeah. So, like, do you think John was like, really, Jesus? Like, Yeah, I think early on there was uh, some clarity, you know, when he saw the dove and all the rest of that. And then John got arrested and the kingdom didn't come. And it's like, well, is he really the Messiah? It, depending on if they grew up together or not, there would be that family familiarity issue that you just raised. These acts of Jesus, these miracles, they are acts of compassion, but that's not all. They're acts of power, but that's not all. They point to Jesus' identity as the kingdom man, the Messiah, the one destined to rule the world. His miracles point to a beautiful future, the beautiful future that the prophets envisioned. They point to an age when everyone enjoys perfect health. He's doing it now right before their eyes and people respond differently. If you want to know what the kingdom will be like, you look at Jesus in action. He gives a taste of the kingdom or to use a movie metaphor, he's a preview of coming attractions, right? Jesus is the trailer. What, what, what is a movie trailer? It, it gives you a taste for what the movie's going to be like. It doesn't give away everything. It just gives you enough to get you to want to go watch it. And then number three, we have casting out demons. And to, to do this one, I mentioned to you Luke eleven twenty, but I, I want to put both verses on here, Matthew 12, 28 and Luke eleven twenty. If you recall, this is an incident where Jesus is casting out a spirit and his critics, I believe it's the Pharisees in this case, they start spreading rumors and challenging him, saying, it's by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that you're casting out this demon. And Jesus says, look, that doesn't make any sense logically because a house divided against itself is not going to stand. And then he says this, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then in Luke eleven twenty, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Do you see the difference? That's the only difference. The spirit and the finger. That's not really my focus so much, but it's an interesting difference, isn't it? The spirit of God is like God's finger casting out these demons. And so Jesus is not doing it on his own strength. He's doing it on the strength of the spirit of God or the finger of God. But what's, what's the key point that I want to make here? Well, it's that Jesus says... The proper way to interpret his exorcism ministry is to think of it as him dropping the kingdom on your head. He's like, look, if it's by the Spirit of God that I'm casting out this demon, it's like the kingdom has just fallen right upon you, right here, right now. In other words, this is tapping into a reality of the future and then doing it in the present, obviously as a testimony of what is to come. Maybe that's not obvious. I don't know what's obvious to you. He's dropping the kingdom on their heads. That's how I like to think of it. This does not mean that the kingdom has arrived. That does not mean that the kingdom is doing miracles. It means that the miracles point to the kingdom the way a sign on a road points to an exit. This, uh, where we are right now, is off of exit 218 on 75. So when you see the sign that says exit 218, does it, is that exit 218? No, that's the sign for exit 218. You try to get off at the sign Yeah. Yeah, if you, if, if you immediately drove right where the sign is, there's no road there, right? But you always get the sign before the reality the sign 
is declaring. Jesus is the sign of the kingdom. He's giving people this impression of what is to come. But the thing about signs is that it's really easy to confuse them with the reality if you don't know what you're talking about. You say, somebody, somebody's in the car and say, is that exit 218? Pointing to the sign. What would you say? Yeah. Yeah. They'd be like, all right, and then he pull off the road. You're like, I thought you said it was exit 218. No, that, that was the sign, man. You gotta wait like two seconds to actually get off the road, right? So it's easy to get that confused. Well, probably not that easy to get that confused, but you can see how uh, there could be confusion, I suppose. This is what Jesus meant when he proclaimed to people, the kingdom of God has come near. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, this is uh, from Mark chapter 12, I don't know if you remember this, this is the incident with the scribe that comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what's the great commandment? And Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, just like any Jew would. He should quote the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the guy said, you're right, he's one. And to love him is better than everything, than sacrifices and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus says to him, he says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He says that to the scribe. You remember that? The kingdom of God is still not even here on earth yet. And yet, thousands of years ago, Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What could he possibly have meant? Well, look, Jesus is the king. He represents the kingdom, right? It would be like the president of the United States saying, if he's like, say you run into the president in the jungles of South America, and you're just going on an adventure trip down there and suddenly you run into the president, and he says to you, you're not far from the United States. Obviously you are far from the United States, but he represents the United States, right? He's the president uh, or she. So here we have it. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He's not, he's not talking about the whole thing coming. He's talking about himself as the king, as the representative, as the one who is enacting and embodying the kingdom in these exciting ways. So this all leads to a word that I really like to use. Uh, it's this word proleptic here. This is Lee Camp. He wrote an awesome book called Mere Discipleship. And he says, and even though that coming aeon remains yet in the future, that's the age to come, that's the kingdom age. There is in Jesus' life and ministry something occurring which embodies that future coming reign. The word proleptic is a helpful adjective here. Proleptic is that which represents or characterizes something in the future as having already occurred or already having been accomplished in the present. So Jesus is proleptically talking about the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom's not here yet, but yet he's acting as if it is here. Do you see the difference? Do you see what I'm saying? See how this works? This is like some of the other analogies I was using is giving a taste, like an appetizer before the main meal. It's, it's the same kind of thing, but uh, not in its totality. A preview before you watch a movie, or a sign on a highway before you get to the actual exit. He's bringing that future into reality before people's eyes, even before that future comes into reality fully. He goes on to say, Jesus' life and ministry, and subsequently the life and ministry of the church, that's where we get involved. Thus, proleptically realizes that coming age in which the enemies of God will be entirely defeated. We might picture the overlapping of two aeons of the new having broken into the old. The old still holds on to its pitiful existence while the new is even now in our midst, its triumph assured. The eschaton, the end, is even now in our midst, but not yet fully. So I think that's a really helpful way to look at it that Lee Camp brings up. The idea is that we live now the way it will be in the kingdom. That makes sense, right? This is how we testify to the world individually and as a community. Look, if you're out preaching the kingdom message and you're cheating on your taxes or you won't forgive people who wrong you or you slack off on the job and you're lazy, how is that going to work? It's going to break your testimony, right? It's going to make your words seem meaningless. However, if you're living the way you already live in the kingdom now, 
by the way you treat people, then you preach the words of the kingdom, it fits together. It makes sense. People are like, oh, I, that's why you live this way, because you believe this is your future. From how we do our homework to how we do marriage, we are giving the world a foretaste of the kingdom. This is Victor Gluckin. He says, when people come and interact with Christians, they should get a small taste of what it will be like in the kingdom. This is important. When people interact with Christians, they shouldn't think to themselves, wow, those people are really judgmental. They shouldn't think to themselves, wow, they're really dysfunctional. They shouldn't think to themselves, wow, they're really lame. I mean, obviously you can't control how people think about you to, uh, to a large degree, but when people encounter Christians, kingdom Christians, they should get a small taste of what it will be like in the kingdom. There should be a sense of the love of God that pervades in the age to come already pervading us now. It should be different than when they interact with people living for this age. Look, if you're living for the age to come, there should be a difference in your life than those who are just living for this age. The gathering of the church, he goes on to say, is an embassy for the kingdom. When we are together, you sense the kingdom spirit. When we leave, we are ambassadors for the king. I think that's a great line. You know, we, we have churches, right? He says, you should look at your church as an embassy. What is an embassy? That's a, a place where, like, say you have an embassy in another country, say the American embassy in England, right? And, and you're vacationing in, in England. Or Wait, didn't you guys go to the American embassy in Kenya to get a passport, yeah. right? Yeah, so once you get into that American embassy, they, they will say to you, this is American soil. This is the United States right here. This little building here, or this little area, this is the United States, because it's an embassy. Now, it's not really the United States, if you think about it. It's really Kenya. The way we should think about our churches, Victor Gluckin is saying, is that we should look at them as the kingdom already present, in some sense. Obviously, it's not gonna be perfect. We're flawed, we make mistakes, but there is there is, there is a reality here that I think can really motivate us to do the hard things of having healthy communities so that our community itself testifies. And actually, the community is one of the biggest things that does testify evangelistically to people. They see the way we treat each other. Have you ever, have you ever seen this where someone will want to come to church or come to some um, Bible study or something, and they don't even really care about Christianity? but they just keep coming. Have you ever seen that before? I, I've seen that before. And, and it's just because when you hang out with us, we don't make fun of you for being too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny, too smart, too dumb. We don't do that because we, we live differently than the world. And people, people are like, wow, I just, I don't, I don't really know what you guys are talking about. And I don't really believe, I like you. I just like being around you. Right. And that's the way and what they're getting is a taste of that age to come when everything wrong with the world is made right. Now, this all comes to the fore in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's a key text for showing Paul's understanding of the same idea of the future affecting how you live now. And so we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you dare? How dare you? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. You can just hear, hear his exasperation, right? Verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And he goes on from there. What is he saying here? He's flabbergasted at how these Corinthians are treating each other. He is completely undone 
by their Christian behavior towards each other. You have one person that's having some sort of business dealing with another, and it doesn't go the way they want it to. Something goes wrong, right? There's a genuine issue between two Christians. This happens. This happens in life. And so what they do is these, these Christians can't figure out what to do. So what do they do? The same thing they did before they were believers. They went to the court. They had Roman court systems in Corinth that you could go to, and each side says their case against the other person, accuses the other person, the other side, and then the person who's in charge of deciding makes a decision, and, and there you have it. Paul's like, you guys are suing each other? You, you're going to judge the world. You're, you're supposed to be the kings and queens of the age to come, and you don't even have in your community one wise person among you? I love the sarcasm. You don't even have one wise person? Come on! He said, look, if you can't figure it out, then just get defrauded and move on with your life. That's what he says. He says, why not rather just be defrauded? Because look, the fact that you brought some other Christian to court before unbelievers is testifying that Christianity doesn't work. It's testifying that you're not qualified to, to judge angels and to judge the age to come. That's how he's reasoning this whole thing through. Let's see it again. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Look, you guys are going to rule the world. You can figure this out among yourselves. Whatever this issue is, figure it out. Do you not know that you're going to judge angels? How much more are the matters pertaining to this life? Your future should affect your present. That's all I'm trying to say here. <laughs> and he says, look, if, if you're going to live in a sinful way, you're not even getting into the kingdom. That's how he ends this off, right? Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You were rascals like these others. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, our God. So live like it, act like it, act like the kingdom. And if you don't act like the kingdom, you're not getting into the kingdom. This is Paul preaching. I love it. It's great. Your destiny should shape your present reality. We all do this. If you're going to get on an airplane, do you prepare ahead of time? Yeah, because otherwise, you, if you don't pack your clothes before you get on the airplane, if you don't find your ID and make sure it's not expired before you get on the airplane, you're going to have a problem. How much more so when you go on a long journey, right? To another country. How much preparation goes into that? Months. Months. Right. You go into another country, now you've got to get the visa. You've got to make sure your passport is up to date. You've got to handle all the logistics with uh, shots and medication. Planning, once you, get on, once you get on site, you need to have a driver, you need to have a place to stay. Or even just something as simple as going on a beach vacation. Has anyone ever gone on a beach vacation? You go and you sit, at, sit by the beach? I do that once in a while. Once in a while. I'm not really a beach guy. I, I, tend, to, I tend to burn. The sun, the sun licks its lips when it sees me with my shirt off. It's like, ah, <laughs> oh, fresh meat, you know. <laughs> Must be uh, something of my... Irish ancestry there. But uh, look, if you're going to go on a beach vacation and you, and you know it like a month or two ahead of time, you prepare. You start avoiding those desserts. Maybe you hit the gym, <laughs> right? So you, you, you check and see if the bathing suit still fits. <laughs> and you, uh, you maybe even go get the, the tan. You, you know, go to the tanning salon a little bit, get the base layer down. And, you know, of course, Anything big in the future affects how you live now, or at least it should. And so the kingdom is the biggest thing in the future. Of course it should affect how we live now. And that's this whole idea of proleptic living. You're living as in light of the kingdom. That's another way to say it. Or as Jesus said, it, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Right? It's the same idea. The Greek word is proleptus, which literally translates to an anticipating. Yes. Very good. Part of embodying the kingdom 
like Christ did, is obeying God now. Which is why he says, look, if you, don't, if you live like you used to live before you were washed, before you were cleansed, you're not even going to get into the kingdom. How should the kingdom of God affect people's lives now? Well, we should be honest. Because in the kingdom, there's not going to be any lies or deception. We actually looked at verses that said those very things. Now that we've built this whole understanding of the kingdom, we can see how it affects us now. Right? In the kingdom age, God is going to be worshipped. So let's worship God now. There's going to be truth. There's going to be justice in the kingdom. How many times do we see justice and peace in those kingdom prophecies? So let's be people of justice and peace now. When it comes to times when Jesus talks about Judgment Day, he always identifies people's lifestyle. Here, let me, let me give you a couple examples. So this just under Kingdom Judgment or Judgment Day. Go ahead and put these down. Matthew 7.21. One of the scarier verses in the Bible. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? This is one of these chilling verses that tells us you can do amazing things in the name of Jesus and still find yourself excluded from the age to come because you failed to follow his teaching. You failed to actually live out what it means when you say Lord. Lord means you do what he says. We'll look at that a little bit more in a uh, future lecture. Luke 9, 62, Jesus says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You want to put your hand to the plow and you want to keep your hand to the plow. Don't look back, don't fall away, don't backslide and all the rest of it. You want to keep your hand to the plow once you get started. Luke 12, 31 it's the third one under this whole topic of judgment. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom. This is the similar idea of uh, Matthew 6.33, right? Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Look, it is, it is true that if you want to disobey what God says is right and you want to live in a way that conforms to this age, this present evil age, that you're not going to get into to the kingdom. That is true. Okay, we saw that in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. We saw it in Matthew 7, 21, 22. We, I could show you many other verses that say that. But in the end, God is not an evil ogre trying to exclude you. In the end, God is, after all, your Father. And what is our God's good pleasure? It's to give you the kingdom. Right? So I don't want you to feel like so overwhelmed by the intensity of Christian ethics and how we have to live righteously to think that you, you know, this is impossible, there's no, there's no way I could do this. Look, God is with you. He sent His Spirit to help you. You can do this. You can live in light of the kingdom. You can live the kingdom proleptically now in the power of the Spirit because God is on your side. That's a big deal. If you're just doing it on your own, we have limited moral grit, don't we? <laughs> Like, you're like, all right, I did the right thing. All right, that's good. I did the right thing again. I didn't do the right thing. Man. All right, I did the right thing, right? And so we need God's help. We need God's help. We can't do it on our own. All right, so to close out this lecture, I want to finish off by looking at the Spirit. And I want to do that by examining Acts 1-6. I want to look at the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and make, make a key point to you that I think really helps to bring all this thing home. So Acts 1-6, if you recall, is the time when they ask Jesus, after he had been raised from the dead, they asked Jesus, is this the time? Is this the time for the kingdom, Jesus? Is this the time to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says in reply, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What I'm interested in here is why did they ask the question, is this the time? Why did they ask that question? What made them think this was the time? Well, probably what Jesus had just said to them in the verse before. This is Acts 1-4. He says, 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, hey, look, guys, the Holy Spirit's coming soon. Their question, is this the time to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, spirit, they think kingdom. Now, commentators have been unkind in the past. This is John Calvin on Acts. He writes in the year 1585, he says, he showeth that the apostles were gathered together when as this question was moved, that we may know that it came not of the foolishness of one or two that it was moved, but it was moved by the common consent of them all. But marvelous is their rudeness. And when as they had been diligently instructed by the space of three whole years, they betray no less ignorance than if they had never heard a word. There are as many errors in this question as words. That's his famous line. They ask him as concerning a kingdom, but they dream of an earthly kingdom, which should flow with riches, with dainties, with external peace, and with such like good things. And while they assign the present time to the restoring of the same. This is John Calvin making fun of the disciples for being disciples, right? For being just dumb. That's a Ben Witheringtonism. I don't think he's right. Well, let's see what else other people say. Matthew Henry commentary of 1706. They were earnest in asking about that which their master never had directed them or encouraged them to seek. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God. Let me read it again. Matthew Henry. They were earnest, the disciples were earnest in asking about that which their master never had directed or encouraged them to seek. Our Lord knew that this his ascension and the teaching of the Holy Spirit would soon end these expectations, and therefore only gave them a rebuke. But it is a caution to this church in all ages to take heed of desire for forbidden knowledge. I'm sorry, but that is like one of the worst commentaries on Acts 1 6 that I've ever seen, which is why I quote it here. John Wesley, 1754. Dost thou at this time, at the time thou now speakest of, not many days hence, restore the kingdom to Israel? They still seem to dream of an outward temporal kingdom in which the Jews should have dominion over all nations? It seems they came in a body, having before concerted the design to ask when this kingdom would come. What are these disciples doing? Last one, the People's New Testament of 1891. Wilt thou at this time, etc.? They still held to their old ideas of a worldly restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Their only question was, wilt thou restore it now? After the Holy Spirit was given, this delusion was dismissed, and they understood that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Look, this is not just like one perspective I just gave you. John Calvin has millions of followers today, the Reformed churches all over the world. Matthew Henry is read by tons of people, especially online, because it's a free commentary. It's out of copyright. And it's one of the cheapest ones you can buy in the bookstore. John Wesley is the founder of the Methodist Church. I mean, it's a massive group of people. Again, millions all around the world. The People's New Testament, I don't know much about it, but it, people are reading this book as well. It's one of the ones that is available in Barnes & Noble when I went to go look and see what commentaries were popular. And... These guys say that the disciples were deluded about the kingdom. But what did Jesus tell his disciples? Were they wrong? Where did they get the idea about the kingdom? From Jesus. Matthew 19, 28. Peter said to him in verse 27, we left everything, right? We've seen this verse a number of times. And Jesus says, look, those of you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Where do they get this crazy idea about a worldly kingdom restored to Israel where they're sitting on 12 thrones judging? From Jesus. This is not a delusion. They're not off base here. Look, the disciples get it wrong sometimes. I'm not saying the disciples are perfect. But in this case, in Acts 1-6, Jesus had talked about the Spirit coming, and they thought, oh, is this the time for the kingdom? And my, my case to you is that that was a correct question. I say that 
because everywhere that the Holy Spirit is talked about in the Old Testament, everywhere that it talks about the outpouring of the Spirit in the Old Testament, it's in a kingdom context. We have not looked at these verses. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. The one you probably are familiar with is Joel. Joel chapter 2, where he talks about how there's going to be these cosmic signs and then the outpouring of the Spirit in the end of days. You see it also in Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah 32. You see it in Ezekiel. I could give you guys the references if you're interested. But the fact is that all these places that talk about the outpouring of the Spirit in the Old Testament, which is their Bible, it's in the context of the coming of the king. Let, let me just show you one. Because I feel like you're looking at me and you're like, all right, I, I hear what you're saying. I see your lips moving, but I'm not necessarily convinced. So let's convince you. All right, let's look at Ezekiel 39, 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now... I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am Yahweh, their God. Because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land, I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord Yahweh. So that's an example of a prophecy in the Old Testament. This is Ezekiel 39, 25 to 29, where it talks about pouring out the spirit. It's clearly in the context of the Messianic age. Or... How about uh, the famous one from Joel 2, 21? It says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The trees bear fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion. Rejoice in Yahweh your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of Yahweh your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. This sounds just like a lot of the kingdom passages we read before. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am Yahweh your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Right? You see the context of the pouring out of the Spirit is in a kingdom prophecy. My, my point to you is that when you look at these different texts from Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 39, Joel 2, and certainly Luke 3. Think about Luke 3. Think about John the Baptist, his prophecy. Think about that for a moment. What was John the Baptist's whole point? His whole point was, look, I mentioned this to you before, right? I'm not worthy to untie the, shoe, the shoes of the person who's coming after me, but when he comes, he's going to have a winnowing fork and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. That's in the context of pouring out the Spirit. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. John doesn't think to himself, well, Jesus is going to come and baptize us in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and then fire is going to come thousands of years later at the final judgment. He doesn't have that information. He just sees it as one event, just like all the prophets before him who mentioned the pouring out of the Spirit, they all see it as something that happens in the end during the kingdom age. So when Jesus says to his apostles in Acts 1.5, wait in Jerusalem till you receive the outpouring of the Spirit, the most logical question in the world is, is this the time for the kingdom? It's the most logical question you could possibly ask. And Jesus says to them, you guys are morons. No, he doesn't say you're morons. What does Jesus say to them? He said, look, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. And then he ascended into heaven. He didn't say another word about it. And so it's only at Pentecost when the Spirit comes down 
that we start to see that something from the future, something exciting from the future, has now been made available in an exciting new way that wasn't expected. And what, what could it possibly mean that the kingdom spirit is here now? God has always been active through his spirit, but it was always limited. However, the spirit has been prophesied to be poured out when the kingdom comes, but the spirit is already here now. So the kingdom spirit has been poured out early to empower us to live like the kingdom even before it arrives in full. Just to, to seal the deal here, think of Hebrews 6, 4 and 5. Hebrews 6, 4 and 5. For it is impossible, this is actually a really depressing verse, but I'm not going to focus on the falling away part, okay? <laughs> but uh, it goes on to say, For it is possible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, it's impossible to renew them to repentance if they fall away. That's what it goes on to say. But look at this. They have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come. I mean, look, look, look at the language here that he uses. He's talking about Christians, then and there. He's like, look, you've already tasted the goodness of the Word of God. You've already shared in the Holy Spirit. You've already tasted of the powers of the age to come. Look, the Holy Spirit is of the age to come, and it's already here, present in the church to, to connect us to God, to enable us to live this kingdom lifestyle in the present. So what I'm saying is, anytime we read about the Holy Spirit, we should think at least the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, not just like any verse about the Spirit, but like the pouring out of it, we should think kingdom. It's the kingdom spirit. If you look at those prophecies, you'll see that. So what am I saying to you? This is all summarized under the heading kingdom way. The kingdom hope is the idea that the kingdom is future and that it's coming. And we looked at it. So we're going to have two sides to the kingdom coin. What are the two sides to the kingdom coin? Restoration and judgment. There's going to be restoration to the world. There's going to be restoration to relationships. There's going to be restoration to our bodies. That's called resurrection, right? Judgment. Judgment of the wicked. Judgment of the nations. Judgment of those who are oppressing other people. That's all under the heading Kingdom Hope. And then, just last time, we talked about how the kingdom is not just something in the future we have to look forward to, it's also the message we preach. It's also the content of the gospel, not the entirety of the gospel, but the critical foundation point of the gospel that Jesus preached, that the 12 preached, that the 70 preached, that Paul preached, that Jesus says, must be preached before the end comes. So it's something we look forward to in the future. It's the gospel message we preach. And now what I'm saying to you is that there is a way of life, a kingdom way of living, where we embody the kingdom, we enact the kingdom, we seek to find ways to proleptically live out the kingdom. Or in other words, anticipate the kingdom by how we treat each other. By what sort of job we, we how, how hard we work at our job, or how we treat our wives, or our husbands, or our children, or our parents. This is a testimony to the world of what the future is going to be like. Ladies and gentlemen, we are the future of humanity. That's pretty exciting. Human 2.0. Yeah. All right, so let's take a quiz and a break, and we'll come back and look at Kingdom Allegiance. Well, I hope you enjoyed that and learned something. I know it's certainly... Uh, way of thinking about the kingdom that I personally find really exciting and worthwhile. If you're interested in taking this subject further, may I recommend to you to get Mere Discipleship by Lee Camp. He's playing on C.S. Lewis's very famous book called Mere Christianity in this book, and he lays out a view of Christian ethics in particular that really does, I think, make a lot of sense of the kingdom message and how it affects us today. Lee Camp studied under John Howard Yoder at Notre Dame and now teaches at Lipscomb University, which is a Church of Christ school down in the South. So I highly recommend his book for your consideration. Also, if you're interested in Victor Gluckin, he has a class on the kingdom as well. 
that is available at kingdomuprising.com, and you just can click on video right on the menu there, and he's got a full YouTube class there with five sessions to it. So check that out if you're interested. Last of all, I just wanted to give a plug to Professor Dale Tuggy for his new book, What is the Trinity? Thinking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I highly recommend this book. If you haven't yet gotten a copy of it, you can order it on Amazon. I just did an interview with him today. Uh, It'll be a few weeks before it comes out here. But in this interview, I asked him about his book. I have uh, finished it myself, and I think it's very helpful for you to think through what the Trinity is, uh, whether you believe in the Trinity or not. It's very helpful in that regard. And then also really can be a tool to help others think through this subject. Professor Tuggy doesn't push his views on anyone, but he doesn't back away from his own position either. So check that out. That's available on Amazon, and stay tuned for the interview with him about that book. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on Sunday. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.